Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the RevOps Podcast. I am your host, of course, Jordan Henderson, and I'm joined today, as usual, by Jonathan Stevens and Brandon Redlinger. Go ahead and say hi, guys. Hey, everyone. Hey, hey. Cool. And, and keeping the, the uh, recent version of awesome guests joining the podcast, we are joined today by Ray Reich. Uh, go ahead and say hi, Ray. Well, I guess it's hey, 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 since you guys all use hey. Perfect. We, lo- we love a good fat Albert on the podcast. We really, we really do. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait when there since Bill Cosby was the voice. So let's move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, cool. So before we dive into this, I actually want to tee this episode up a bit differently than usual because I'm super excited about today. But we're going to try something slightly different on the RevOps podcast. It's been pointed out by listeners that I am a very dominating voice on the podcast. I hear you. I am. I totally understand and agree. And I would love the opportunity to uh, be less dominating voice on the podcast. So today, for the first time ever, we are going to allow the junior co-host, Brandon Redlinger, <laughs> to lead to, to actually lead as the host. That way I can participate more as a RevOps uh, persona with Ray on the podcast as well, because Ray and I have actually done a podcast of his own together on the metrics that measure up podcast uh which you can find we'll link in the comments uh, but we, we've done this together a couple of times and, and i'm super excited to sort of hand off this episode to brandon that way i can participate in the q a a little bit I've more been heavily promoted. today uh, it's, in, like, it's a limited duration <laughs> test. Like, like the t- the starting quarterback and the backup quarterback both tore an ankle up a little bit, and then and, 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 and you're and you're you're being brought in to you know fill that gap. We're hoping we can get a win. Is what's well, happening. The Super Bowl's you know? going we're, up we're, here, right? We're going to rely heavily on the defense. Is what that means. So. <laughs> So, so without further ado, Brandon, I'm going to hand it off to you to to, to go forward. Yeah, well, I, I'll start off with saying, of course, thank you, Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> since I put this outline together like a week ago. Um, no, but um, uh, so definitely want to give a little bit of background on Ray because I mean he's he's the perfect person to lead the conversation, or I guess not lead the conversation, but uh, talk to us a little bit more about the data. Um, because Ray is one of the most, you know, metric minded and, you know, data driven guys that I've ever met out there. And he is, you know, he's he's got such a vast experience when it comes to leading, uh, you know, interdisciplinary uh, operations teams across marketing, sales, customer success. You know, he has his own company called RevOps Squared, which I actually didn't know. Ray started back in 2008 and then relaunched back in 2019. So uh, talk to us a little bit about that journey, right? Well, <clears throat> I had been an operating executive, as you said, in subscription software companies and had run marketing sales services and customer success. And I saw that we were having a fragmentation of data, process, and really organizational goals all the way back in the early 2000s. So I said, I'm going to create this organization called RevOps Squared. And we're going to go in and we're going to be a managed service that aligns and integrates those three organizations and all the technology that they use. Well, just let me tell you, in 2008, 2009, people looked at me like, you want to do what between marketing and sales or between sales and (laughs) service? So after about six months, I realized that the opportunity to gain alignment and integration wasn't large. 
So I, mm. I put RevOps mm. squared, went back to some operating roles where I was president CEO a couple times. And in 2019, I decided to retire. And after about a month, my wife was tired of that gig. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to some friends, some um, venture capitalists I've worked with, and they're like, Ray, you always talk about benchmarks. And you always would come in and benchmark the customer acquisition, retention, and efficiency before you would start implementing process changes. So I decided that we were going to build the world's first and largest repository of B2B SaaS and cloud metrics in the form of benchmarks so that any company could see how they benchmark against best-in-class companies in their specific cohort for acquisition efficiency, retention efficiency, and expansion efficiencies, all the things that RevOps needs to understand and help do. Yeah, how, how they benchmark. So hence the name metrics that measure up. Correct. Ben- benchmarks are a way to see whether you're a 1 million ARR, a 20 million ARR, or 100 million ARR. How do your performance metrics measure up to your cohort and your bench and your index? Perfect. I, I love that. Cool. All right. Well, another reason why you're here today actually is um, because we want to talk about the 2022 customer acquisition and revenue operations benchmark report that we did in partnership with Demandbase and TenBound and, of course, RevOps Squared. Um, so definitely excited to dive into that. But before we go into the findings, why don't you give our listeners just a quick overview of the audience itself? Who did we talk to uh, who actually participated in that survey? Yeah, well, our typical goal in these type of research programs is to have a minimum of right at 150 to 200 participants um, up to 500 And in this particular program that was really trying to benchmark both customer acquisition um, metrics and revenue operations as a function, we had approximately 200 companies. And it was really nice because it was equally distributed across both ACV and ARR. An example, only 26% of participating companies were less than 5 million. Another 24% were between 5 million and 20 million. And 26% were um, between 20 million and 50 million. So right there, you have about 76% of the cohort, and the other 24% were greater than 50 million, so some larger scale companies too. Simultaneously, average annual contract value impacts um, metrics and benchmarks pretty materially. So we had 43% of our participants had average annual contract values in the 10K to 50K range, and another 15% that were in the 50K to 100K range. So a real nice distribution. It wasn't even a bell curve distribution. It was pretty linear. Cool. Got it. Got it. That sounds good. Well, let's let's dive right well, into I mean, the findings. I, mean, I, I would say that's that's probably like the most important thing when pulling this, right? Because I think that, that when you start to put benchmark reports so frequently it's it's you know pulled by a thing and you, if you look at the subset of data there there is a bell curve and you might not be comparable to the peak of that bell curve and therefore the data in those benchmarks isn't really that applicable to you you're not looking across at your peers you're looking at industry companies and titles and departments at, at companies that are in a different part of their journey as a business than you are and therefore it's not the same thing right it's it's very important jordan and for the revops professionals throughout there where somebody says okay what's our gross dollar retention or net dollar retention. I'm just making two metrics up, right? And the board says we should be at 120% net dollar retention. The first question is, oh, I'm going to go find out where we're at. It's like, why should we be at 120%? What are the Mm -hmm. attributes of a company that should be at 120% net dollar retention? And if you're at a 
$1 million ARR or you have a less than 1K product, that's bullshit. So first thing is benchmark yourself <laughs> against the right cohort of customers more like you. Totally. Yeah. Otherwise, you compare to apples to oranges, simply put, right? Like that, that's the end of the day, the simplest way to think about it. Yep. And um, another another company that I th- the only other company that I know besides you guys who kind of does a little bit of that is Opex Engine. And I only know them because I listen to them on your podcast, right? Yeah, no, Lauren Kelly and Opex Engine have been doing benchmarks for almost 12 years and they've done a real nice job. And the only difference is Lauren has built a revenue generating business that does that. I do all the benchmarking for end users who want to see how they measure up 100% absolutely free and will never charge for benchmarks at RevOps Squared. I love that. Nice. Yeah, little sales pitch. All right, all right. I like it. <laughs> like I, like a true it. Sales I mean, not, I not like even it. not even really a sales pitch. You're not selling anything. Not anything. So, exactly. so, so, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jordan, the marketing guy gave me the lead, and I had to take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you, you gotta jump on the. He, he 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 left that door wide open. Welcome, We're gonna well knock done. it. I'm gonna give him a grade at his hosting at the end of this. He gets a little bit of a knock for opening that window for you, but I like it. Hey, you gotta make the gotta make the guests happy, you know. <laughs> I've never right, cool. had that philosophy. Uh, <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Well, let's let's actually dive into the findings. Uh, Ray, I'll I'll start by kicking this one over to you, uh, and then of course we'll see if Jonathan and Jordan have anything intelligent to say at all. Um, <laughs> you just, I'm pretty wow, just trying oh, to be okay, me. Yeah, I got yeah, it. That's right, that's right. I got it. The shoe's on the other foot now. <laughs> cool. Okay, so so the, the the first finding here was that you know. Um, Shared revenue and pipeline goals by sales and marketing is growing. That's the good news. Um, but it, the question is, is it fast enough? So our research found that revenue and pipeline goals are shared by sales and marketing 34% of the time or in 34% of the companies that were surveyed. So that was surprising to me to hear. But I want to know, Ray, is that surprising to you? And if so, why do you think that's so low? Yeah, um, it- The findings weren't surprising to me, Brandon, but they are disappointing. And when we (laughs) first launched RevOps Squared, one of the goals was to get better alignment and actual integration of marketing, sales, and customer success because there's always traditionally can be a lot of friction there. And companies, even in 2022, they're saying, well, maybe sales owns the revenue goal and maybe marketing and 34% of other companies own the pipeline goal. But even then... If you only have one of those goals, you're going to artificially inflate how you make that goal. So if you've got pipeline goal as one function, you're going to do everything you can to push opportunities in the pipeline, but they not be high quality opportunities in the pipeline. So it's, it's disappointing. And I think until the CEO sets the tone that we are going to collectively own both revenue and pipeline goals between marketing sales and customer success, because with customer success being so critical to not only customer retention, but customer expansion, if they don't own those goals, you're always going to have some friction existing there. Yeah, totally. Could not, could not agree so more. So that, that 34%, Ray, uh, is that across, because you had, you know, sort of four buckets of company sizes that included all about a quarter each, you know, below 5 million, 5 million to 20 million, 20 million to 50 million. Is that 34% evenly distributed across all of those sort of four buckets? Or do you see like larger companies are more likely to have a shared pipeline goals or, or less likely than a smaller company, for example? Yeah. Um, when you look at small, small companies under 5 million, you see more people having shared goals between sales and marketing. Okay. Once they get kind of five to it's three, easier. It's it's easier because 
Yeah. Sometimes you might even only have one person responsible for sales and marketing. At a company yeah. scale, they're looking mm, for right. efficiency in each particular discipline, pipeline building, closing, et cetera. That's when you start seeing less of the shared. And then as you hit $50 million and above, you start seeing more shared goals. Ah, uh, because that hits the point in your your business journey where you can't continue to grow without those things to a degree, right? right. Like, exactly. And, like, and let me, I want to share one thing. There's, and this is something revenue operations professionals can help eliminate. It's called the functional silo syndrome. Are you guys familiar with the functional silo syndrome? Yeah, enlighten us. Yeah. So this yeah. was um, first invented by a gentleman named Philip Enser, and he worked for the Goodyear Tire Company. This was in the '80s, and so it came out of the manufacturing industry. But this is where you're looking for the maximum efficiency for every unit of work. How fast does one person put on the lug nuts and how fast does someone else um, Mm. put on the tires to the rims, etc. And when you focus on such small, narrow units of work and their efficiency, it can sub-optimize other areas. Because all you care about is, all I care about is how fast I can put the lug nuts on. I don't care about the bumpers, etc. So what we've done in SaaS as an industry We've gotten so focused on pipeline as one discipline, even channels of pipeline. I'm going to really maximize my paid media pipeline. I'm going to maximize my event pipeline that we don't take a step back and say, well, how is that pipeline generation activities across every channel impacting conversion rates and sales efficiency? So we have fallen into that trap, and that's what we as RevOps professionals should really try to do is eliminate those that functional silo syndrome. I love that. I think it, it just creates so much more alignment between the two teams because you, you often see there's so much of a disconnect between those organizations, whether there's there's content out there that sales doesn't know about or they're just doing different things and it's working against each other. Oh, and Jonathan, the story I tell the time is when I remember going to the bar one night after the quarter closed, right? And this was a company that I ran um, sales, marketing, and services in. And the marketing people were really happy. And I'm like, why are you guys so happy? They, Ray, we made our marketing goals. We hit our, <laughs> hit our retweet goal. Like, yeah. But we missed our top line new customer closes by 20%. How can we be happy? And I looked in the mirror that night and I said, it's my fault because I let marketing have goals that weren't really aligned to the company goals of growing new revenue. Mm-hmm. Totally. It, it also goes it goes the inverse too. Like you share the failures, but you have to share the successes too. I also see a lot of companies where sales you hit all your revenue goals, but like marketing missed their pipeline, and marketing's like, "Oh, we had a tough quarter." Like, no, right. you didn't. Yeah. You had a wonderful <laughs> quarter. You hit all the revenue yeah. goals. What are you talking about? Yeah. You, you you need to scramble to backfill so six months from now you you are going to hit your revenue goal again because you set yourself up in a bad way. But like like share that victory. We hit our revenue goals. Everybody wins, right? Product, marketing, sales, customer success. Let's all celebrate that. Yeah. Jordan, I've always said revenue is a team sport. And to get yes. real alignment, customer success, sales, and marketing all have to say, we have a shared revenue goal. Totally. I love totally that. Agree. So what what was what was your title of that company, by the way? Um with that company I was chief operating officer. Chief operating officer. Interesting. Well, I think that that kind of leads into our, our, our next finding. And the, the question here is how common is chief revenue officer officer? And our data shows that 47 percent of companies have a chief revenue officer or oftenly known as CRO. And another 10 percent of companies plan to add CRO in 2022. So my question that I'm going to uh, throw over to you guys is, you know, what is the main responsibility of a modern CRO? And also maybe, you know, what's the most common path that you see 
CRO is taking up to being a CRO. So who do you want to weigh in first, Brandon? Yeah, I why mean, don't you go for it, you're Ray. the guest, Ray. Get in there. Yeah. Oh, man, I was <laughs> on, what, on what Jordan and Jonathan were going to say, but so it's interesting. <laughs> Back in the early 2000s, I would never take a revenue um, responsibility role unless I had the COO title or SVP mm-hmm. of sales and marketing or field operations. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, I did not want to have that lack of integration. So over the last 20 years, we've seen the evolution of chief revenue officer with the original intent to align and integrate at least marketing and sales and today marketing, sales and customer success. But as we did the research, Brandon, what we saw was even though 46% of companies had a CRO role in place, only 12% of companies had a CRO that was responsible for marketing, sales and customer success. Then another 10% have sales and marketing responsibility, just sales and marketing. And then 6% had sales and customer success responsibility. So what this tells me, gentlemen, is that unfortunately, the majority of companies are just elevating the head of sales into a CRO role. (laughs) Yeah. And they don't have the responsibility to align and integrate those three organizations to the customer experience. Which means yeah, yeah. your head of sales is running just sales. And well, I mean, it's it's a chief sales officer. It's just it, it's a it's another name for a CSO. I mean, what what that actually is is yeah, forty six percent of companies have a CRO, but actually twelve percent of companies have a real CRO. Exactly. Right? That's, right. Yeah, that's, that, right. that's that's the the real answer to the question. Then which then you you have to ask yourself why why is yeah. that? Yeah. So depends on who you talk to, right? If you talk to a marketing centric person as well. People with sales experience don't know how to run marketing, so why would they have marketing? People from sales said, well, the head of marketing doesn't know how to run a sales organization, so why are they? So there's some fixed mindset type of thinking versus the growth mindset. Unfortunately, that exists at the CEO level also. Unless the CEO, who, by the way, is the number one person responsible for sales and marketing alignment in a B2B SaaS organization, unless they stand up and say, hey, we're going to have total alignment and integration of these three go-to-market functions. And the way we're going to do that, I'm appointing as chief revenue officer. And she has all three. And then until we do that, we're going to continue to see this bifurcation like we do today. And that brought to totally. your point, Brandon. I'm sorry to keep talking, but I am the guest. No, but you are the guest. <laughs> um, so what's the background? Well, most CROs today do come from more of a sales-oriented background. However, my recommendation is cross-functional experience is going to be critical to the CROs of tomorrow. So I don't care if you grow up, let's say you start your role as a sales development rep, and most people say, oh, I want to become an account executive. Maybe you go over into demand gen for a year or two. Or if you're a customer success manager, that's great, but go be an SDR for a year or go into the growth function over in marketing. But if we can get people to have cross-functional experience in their first 10 years, those will be the CROs of tomorrow who truly can integrate and align those three go-to-market functions. And, and and that's I mean that's the model from like the eighties and seventies eighties maybe even before that right IBM and uh, HP some of those early guys that's how they would breed their future executives right it's you go spend five years here you go spend five years over here you go spend five years over here then you get a full understanding of the business now 
they're set up to be an executive. It's it's even like McDonald's. You you cannot like you used to not be able to work at McDonald's unless you knew how to work the assembly line at a McDonald's, right? Like you couldn't be an executive at that company unless you did the training that their all of their employees have to go through. Which is, is that why you never made it past? I know I didn't do well at McDonald's. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but but it, but it's the same. It's actually the same thing that I I, uh, I we get asked a lot. I get a lot of messages like, "Hey, I'm in sales ops. How do I become a rev ops professional?" Like, well, you need marketing ops experience. You need CS ops experience. You need to understand CS. You need to understand marketing. You need to understand all of these things. That way, you can you know, truly do rev ops. Absent that, you will fail as a rev ops professional. It, it, won't, it won't work. Yeah, and it's up to your senior leadership to really instill that because you're not going to be able to just get that experience without your senior leadership having some type of sign off that you're allowed to kind of go explore other avenues in the company. This is very important because I make Jonathan do things outside of marketing ops all the time. (laughs) And sometimes he pushes back and I'm like, no, you need to learn this. (laughs) So now, so now he can't argue anymore. He understands. To your point, you mentioned, you know, IBM, like I grew up at GE for my first almost eight years and Mm. I did a rotational program and that's where Mm. I learned. By the way, I spent six months in a finance um, role to learn how to do balance sheets and income statements, mm. et cetera. So that's why I do metrics because I love finance because of that experience. But it's really hard for a 5 million or 10 million AR company to have that type of rotational program. Sure. Yeah. Right. So, however, I still think we should hire SDRs or marketing people and say, it's a two year commitment that you're making. You're going to spend a year in one role and a year in another role. I don't see there's any, any reason why we can't do that or even go like one of the things I've done is I've hired early career people into an SDR role. And after six months, I saw how good they were at building the list or doing all the research. And I'm like, hey, I'm putting you over into whether it was marketing ops or rev ops, because I think you have the orientation where you want to spend all your day and data and reporting. That's great. That's not what we need on the phone. Go give it a shot. And they were very successful long term because we had the culture to say, let's put people in different roles and maybe in the role they're better positioned to be successful in. Totally agree. I think the SDR team is the the greatest funnel for an ops team. Mm-hmm. John, Jonathan was an SDR once upon a time, did, ter- <laughs> did terribly out of them, but was an SDR so once upon a time. <laughs> yeah. um, and Matt, Matt on our team, who is, is actually coming up on his second year in, in revenue operations, was an SDR at our business for a long period of time. And, and actually, it, exactly what happened, what you just said, Ray, is, is I met him and after a few minutes, I was like, man, you love the operations piece of this job, don't you? Like, like you you don't like the cold calling, but you love the, the all of the Salesforce stuff that you're doing and all those things. Like, this is the person that I need to come in here his workflow was good like all of those things it was pretty easy to see that that was where his passion was and the last thing i'll say to this this is a rev centric podcast right i believe that the cro of tomorrow she also needs to have if not operations experience an orientation to operationalizing processes because if you get to the point of having to CRO, you need to really look at how you make each process and the interdependencies more operationally efficient. That is going to be a critical skill set of the CRO tomorrow. Or we're going to just have a chief sales officer and a chief operating officer, and they're going to have different roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. There's one other thing that I want, Ray, you mentioned working with finance helped you in your career, you know, early on and, 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 you know, getting into the balance sheets, learning how to do a bunch of that. 
RevOps people need to be working closely with the finance team. It's something we've talked about on other episodes. I work super closely with our CFO. I, I'm not a finance nerd. I try really hard at it, but I'm, I'm a lawyer and I'm not an accountant. <laughs> so, but just understanding all of what they do and being able to speak the language and jump in and help out where you can, it will help you in a RevOps role. It absolutely will. It's, it's foundational to a RevOps role. I, I've always been a strong proponent proponent of demand gen also uh, understanding finance and aligning with the CFO mm-hmm. very closely as well. Totally. Yeah. I think everybody, in fact, I instruct CROs, your second meeting after you sit down with the CEO on your first day is go ask the CFO to meet with them and say, what are the metrics that you present to the board of directors and investors? And then go back and make sure that your metrics, which are leading indicators and what the CFO presents to the board and investors, are aligned. I say the same thing to a head of RevOps. The RevOps person should go and have a meeting with the CFO and say, what are the leading indicators and metrics from the go-to-market teams that you have, you, you use for your metrics or you have a concern about? And there's often a concern. Well, I don't believe in the close rate. Or I don't believe in the pipeline coverage ratio. I'm just giving you two things. Find out what their concerns are and go back and see if you can enhance the operational and systems approach to those metrics. You will always have the CFO's ear if you make her job easier. Totally. Even sit in, ask to sit in. I, I worked with a, a CFO, Gabby Loeb is his name. Shout out to Gabby, one of the one of my favorite people I've ever worked with years years ago at a company. And and early on in working together, he came to me as the, the guy leading ops. I was sales, marketing, and CS ops at the time because revenue operations wasn't a title that existed. And and he was like, can you, you know, sit in and help us put together all these metrics for this board meeting? And just sitting in and helping them do this allowed me to see, okay, these are the metrics that are important to them. Here's what they trust. Here's what they don't trust. Here's what's hard to get at. Here's what they want to get to, but they're having a hard time getting there. And then figure out how to fix that from an operational standpoint on my end was fundamental to me aligning our business across the department. So if you can inject yourself into those processes, and obviously it's a lot of time commitment to go do that, but so important to do it. Yeah. And so often you see misalignment between sales, marketing and finance as far as what numbers they're putting out there as their revenue and their pipeline. <laughs> and that's no fun world to be in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We just we just did some research with the finance community and we said, how important is your alignment, the finance organization to sales and marketing to optimizing revenue growth? And it was about 60, excuse me, 61 percent of CFOs said it's very important. Another like what are the other thirty? What are the other thirty nine percent doing? <laughs> I think it was twenty percent said it was important. It just wasn't very important. Ah, okay. But, yeah. But, so there's ten percent that said it's not though. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> what? I, I don't get it. But here's the other thing for revenue operations: the number one challenge of a CFO when it comes to the data they're getting from sales and marketing and customer success is forecasting. The number one answer to what percentage of forecast you typically hit, the plus or minus um, error, error, it's 10 to 20%. So every quarter, the CFO has a number that they're presenting to the CEO and the board, and they miss it by 10 or greater percent. So if RevOps can understand what are the input variables to forecasting, and is there an opportunity for you to improve the operationalization of that so that CROs and CFOs can make better forecasts? 
that's when we can take RevOps from unfortunately what I see too often being a more of a tactical kind of back office function to a strategic seat at the table that the CEO and CFO are going to depend upon every day. We, we did a whole episode around forecasting and, and negative forecasting. Yeah, and forecast variance. And, 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 and I, I, would, I would caveat, I, I love forecast variance as a RevOps accountability metric for what it's worth. I think it's it's a great thing for your RevOps team to look at our success. The smaller your company are, the more company is, the more likely you are to have some forecast variance because if you're only selling $500,000 a quarter, for example, and you happen to close one big deal out of the blue that's worth 200000 your forecast variance is going to be massive, right? Right. You, you are going to. And so you have bigger fluctuation, whereas the larger you get, the data becomes more valuable. You can use you can use that data to make more and more accurate forecasts as the larger you get. So the yeah. only sort of caveat I, I use to that one always. I said, like, well, along the sales and marketing alignment theme, that, that brings us to our next uh, finding. And it's um, let's see, the CEO is still the number one executive who owns sales and marketing alignment. 23% of the time. Um, and right after that, it's split between CRO, CMO, and head of RevOps uh, relatively equally. But question for you now, Ray, is do you see this changing and do you see this really, um, is it evolving? Are we going in the right direction? Yeah, um, it is evolving because we at least see 10% of CROs having sales, marketing, and customer success. And I think when companies are scaling to $20 million and above, I think it's going to be a, a continued evolving trend. Now, it's going to also depend on what the core competencies are of the CEO. Like if the CEO is more of a product and engineering person, I think we're going to see more CROs. If they're really good on the go-to-market, I can see them still beating the primary source of integrates and aligns. There's three functions. And then it also is going to depend upon the executives you have in our head of marketing, head of sales, and head of customer success. Do you have the person that you feel confident you can put into that top CRO role and that she or he will get respect from all um, the other two functions? But I do think it will continue to evolve at $20 million and above. I think below $20 million is going to be uh, uh, another title for a chief sales officer. Where I see the CEO doing this as being a disaster, I've had experience with this, financial services. Because CEOs and financial services almost always sales-oriented, only care about sales. It's, a, it's interesting. <laughs> speaking speaking with some PTSD there, Jonathan, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very much but, so. But, but to you, Ray, so one of the things we just talked about was, um, you know, like even in the case where CRO, like a true CRO, right? Somebody who owns sales, marketing, CS alignment, like really owning that. It still has to come from the CEO, right? Even if the CEO is product-oriented, they still have to mandate that to a degree, even if they're not owning it. Um, you know, I, I'm not a big, fan of the word, big fan of the word mandates, especially with vaccination noise out there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get us canceled, guys. But, but I, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, sorry, Spotify. <laughs> but I do believe it needs to be strongly advocated by the CEO, and honestly, the entire executive team. And if the CEO says, this is what we're doing, get on board or get off, then that strong advocation, and by the way, continued support, and at the same time, feedback. If that person grew up through the sales organization, part of that one-on-one is going to be, hey, you know, I see you're focusing a lot on ensuring we're getting pipeline and getting, excuse me, the close rates, but don't forget about customer success. 
we really might be lagging behind with some of our innovation for reducing churn. Make sure you spend more time there. That CEO needs to be the captain of the integration ship with the CRO. I totally agree. Totally agree. Is that is that it? Is that Bra- totally Brandon? You, this is a yeah. You, you're the host. You got you, You're the host. What are you doing? I, I, when, he he when, said it perfectly. Move forward. We don't have, we don't have to. Like he, he nailed it. Now you You nailed when, it. When, you, when Jonathan and I say agree, you give us shit, and then when, when you say agree, true. we give you shit. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, but but I never leave thirty seconds of dead air. So. <laughs> By the way, I can talk, I can take all the air if you want me to, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody help him. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, all right, let's let's move on to the next one because we actually have a, a lot more findings. We'll, we'll make the full report available in case we don't get through all of our findings. Uh, if you go to revenue.io slash benchmarks, you'll get the full benchmark report um, or just hit up one of us. We'll, we'll obviously send, send that uh, PDF right to you. Um, okay, but... On to the next category. We've actually talked a little bit about this before in past episodes, uh, but we actually have some data behind it now. So 41% of companies having a a revenue operations function in place is actually pretty consistent with what we have seen over the last few years. So uh, last year, or I guess in the past two years, um, it was about 34%. So it's not not a big jump here. So... um, my, my question over to you, Ray, is where are we at in the hype cycle right now? And what should we expect to see in the next few years? Yeah, well, I think we all would admit that the end of 2020 and 2021 was peak hype cycle for RevOps. We look at how many podcasts we have on revenue operations, right? <laughs> I said, I'm going to build the best one. So I think we now need to move to those companies who have deployed RevOps, really showing the business value that we're driving and being able to articulate and increase the communication of those successes. So I think the next three years is more about proof of the business value of revenue operations than it is to get another 30, 40% of companies to deploy it. Because I'm a big fan of Jeffrey Moore, and he wrote a book called Crossing the Chasm. And it's about the product lifecycle adoption curve. So with RevOps, we've went from the innovators and visionaries to the early adopters, and we've just crossed the chasm to the early majority. Now, early majority typically represents about 30 to 40% of companies will actually adopt a technology or a new process or a new organization like RevOps. I think it's going to be two to three years before we enter into the late majority when we're going to see 50 to 70% of organizations having RevOps deployed. So hopefully that was clear in my answer. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, where I was coming from with this is, is I mean, I was looking at more of the, Gar- the you know the Gartner hype cycle, and honestly, having having gone through uh, kind of this in in the last I don't know six years with ABM, I, I feel like we're we're still really at the early beginning stages still where everyone's trying to define it, everyone's trying to figure it out, everyone thinks they're doing it, but no one still actually knows what they're doing yet. And I, I feel like people are, are still going to get it wrong more and struggle more before they get it right. Brandon, you're so right. And let's define what a revenue operations function is. I just I do these metrics um, and benchmark assessments at SaaS companies. And this was about a 75 million ARR company. And they introduced RevOps as a separate function 
So sales ops and marketing ops and CS ops doesn't report up to it, right? And they're responsible for looking at data management opportunities between the three functions. They're responsible for saying, can I build reports that take data from the marketing automation platform and the sales CRM platform and CS and roll it up? So it's a business analyst. Yeah, it's not an overarching function. It's a role. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's a business concern. analyst. Exactly. <laughs> it's a business analyst. I mean, that's that's not revenue operations. That's business analyst. Like, but they had the, which is a valuable role. But but Jordan, they had the title revenue operations analyst, and they had a revenue operations manager. <laughs> right. I yeah. I, I think that I think to you guys' point though that we'll see a lot of that before people mm-hmm. real they'll either abandon it altogether and then later realize that they've done it wrong and come back to yeah. it or. They will slowly evolve into doing it the right way. So I think a lot of that will happen too. I think companies will bring in revenue operations, like a director of revenue operations, and they won't be doing exactly revenue operations right away, but over the course of time, they might evolve their approach to, to get to a point where that's the case. And, and I think I think that will take time too. It's always important to start somewhere. So even if you don't start off perfect, <laughs> as long as you're starting, that's the most important part. Yeah. Well, that was an interesting um, piece of the research, and Brandon and I talked a little bit about this before today's show, was when do you introduce RevOps, right? What's the optimal time? And, and Brandon, I think you have some information. What was it? Was it like 37% of the time it was introduced between 5 million and 20 million? Is that right? That's that's exactly right. Well done. You 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 know your uh, numbers. Yeah, well, who, who, knew, who knew that Ray <laughs> yeah. was a metrics guy? Who knew? <laughs> I know. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> so the, the question is, you know, when should you introduce RevOps and how should you introduce RevOps? And this is an area that I'm really passionate about. So I do think if, you, if you're $20 million and above and you haven't introduced RevOps, you need to do it ASAP, but don't use a big bang approach. We're going to take everybody and have a report up to this new head of RevOps. I think you look at cross-functional opportunities for operational efficiency And the three that I see almost all the time, which I think are ripe as a place for RevOps to start, is data management. Because how many times have you guys spent, well, we have the lead information, we send it over to the CRM for sales, but it's got the wrong company firmographic information, the wrong technographic information. Big deals, right? Mm -hmm. Huge Mm -hmm. deal, yeah. Or we close a deal, we hand it over to CS, and CS is like, who are all these players again? What are their roles? It's like, <laughs> what, yeah. what, what, what problem are we solving for these people? Yeah. So, so that's one area that I think is ripe to have RevOps, RevOps start at, even in a $20 million and above. The second is reporting and analytics. Uh, we know that you know if you're a Marketo or even a HubSpot, maybe some of the reporting isn't as robust as you like, so you need to extract everything into a data warehouse or a data lake if you're bigger and then put a fancy BI tool on top of it. There was a lot of opportunities for operational efficiency and enhanced insights and thus forecastability by integrating reporting analytics under RevOps responsibility. And the third, and this is a trend, I don't know if you guys have done it yet, but is taking all the revenue platform administration and integration. So if you've got marketing ops doing some of the marketing automation administration, you've got CS ops doing some of the customer success platform administration, you've got someone in sales ops doing Salesforce administration, et cetera, have a centralized, dedicated revenue platform administration integration team. That's going to um, help identify interfunctional, cross-functional operational efficiency opportunities. What do you guys think of that? 
I mean, that, that is that is us. That's what we do. We're not going to say that's, no to that. <laughs> yes, that's revenue IO is what you're describing right there. And, and, and that's what we I mean, that's what we do. That's what we're passionate about. Right. We, we sell a platform for that exact purpose because we want to be able to have a team that's managing all of your revenue operations tech stack, not just siloed off technology. Because what happens is, is if you if you lack that, if you make it very hard to connect those systems by having, you know, 45 systems and you don't have somebody focused on making sure all the systems are working well together, you have have messy data. You can't make decisions as a business. You're handcuffed in your ability to actually run a, a you know good revenue operation. But Jordan, let me ask you this though. So platform consolidation, because we know what's happened over the last five years, you know, sales buys their own platform, or quite frankly, sales development says, oh, we're going to bring in this new platform. And you find out about right. it three months later. Um, I don't think we can count on platform consolidation in the near term, even though I think it's where we're going to go long term. It's got to be the integration of the data, the process, and the platforms we have as step one. What do you think of that? I agree. I, I, I agree. Like platforms is, is going to be the future. And if you can do platform, opt for platform. Always. Like, it, it, you know, that that's the best case scenario. But one of the things that I've talked about a lot in the past is, is the different levels of integration. First off, you should never buy technology without whoever owns technology, ultimately, typically your revenue operations team or your tech alignment team, should be being a part of the process. You should not be yes. allowed to do that. And that comes from a, going back to a CEO or CRO saying, we can't buy tech unless so-and-so has seen it and agreed to use it. And then when you are evaluating technology, don't buy technology that doesn't integrate. You, you don't always have to get a platform, but there is certainly a technology out there that has an integration that you can use instead, right? That probably does the same thing as the tool you're looking at. And so th- that's why you need your RevOps team involved to own that. Going back to, you know, having a team that actually owns this thing, they need to be involved in the buying process to make sure that we have designed integration in all of our tools. Totally agree. Jonathan, you were about to say something. Uh, I became irrelevant. I, I was going to try to. I told you. He shut that down real quick. <laughs> as usual. As usual. Yeah. All right. Cool. But, well, but it's, I, a great, it's a great point, though, Ray. Like, it really is. And yeah. it's a thing that I think a lot of people listening to the podcast will say, man, I wish people asked me before we bought tools. <laughs> like, I think that's, <laughs> like, there's going to be a lot of people that say that. So It's so common. It's so common. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of large organizations, honestly, can't can't help it until they do have more rigor around buying technology and they do have processes to really make sure revenue operations or whoever really owns the tech stack uh, in their helping evaluate. Totally. That's, so, that becomes so critical in the reporting side of the fence, too, because if mm. everything is disjointed, then reporting becomes a mess and your RevOps team is going to spend all their time on reporting. Also, tech spend. The and like <laughs> people are going to buy tools that could do the same things, right? That's how you end up talking to customers who have like three platforms that are direct competitors with each other and they're a customer of all three. You're like, how, <laughs> how did you get yeah. into this bucket? Right. You don't need to be paying three companies. You could just be paying one of them. Common at big companies. Common yeah, at big companies. Very yeah. common. Oh, Com- yeah. Common at small companies. People don't evaluate what the <laughs> tools can do cross departmentally. They evaluate what it can do for one team. And then you end up with lots of duplicative tools. I'll throw out another stat for you guys. So there's a company that, basically has agents that goes out and says, how many SaaS tools are we using within our network and going external? 34% of SaaS software within an organization, small or big, is not companies purchased. It's purchased by the individual. They may expense it or may not expense it. So if you've got 
of the number of SaaS applications your company's using, not even known, think about how that creates operational inefficiency. Oh, yeah, that's scary. Well, geez, I mean, I almost feel like with how, how much PLG product-led growth is like on the rise right now, too. I, I don't see that, you know, I, I see that only going up. Exactly. Right, don't you? I mean, PLG is huge right now. A lot of companies going public, high, super high valuations. Uh, you probably know the exact stat, but how many of them right now actually have PLG mentioned in their go-to-market? Now, I don't know the exact stat, but I can tell you from a public company valuation, if you're a PLG with usage-based pricing, on average, your enterprise value to revenue model is 10 to 15x higher. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the data dogs, the snowflakes, the Twilio's of the world. So, Twilio, yeah, But that's a whole exactly. other episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll, next we'll, time we, next time we definitely want to do an episode on plg ourselves but uh, i i want to make sure we save time for our regular this week on linkedin but before we get to that i'm going to point people again over to revenue.io slash benchmarks and and jonathan right now just make a note to let's, let's go create that redirect before i forget um I will and, do it and we'll <laughs> Did you say? thank you appreciate it <laughs> I, yeah, I, on, on the spot on the spot um and and, and we have I, I think what what did we hit four or five of of the findings we have five or six more of the key findings from the report. And you can actually dig into the, the details of each of the, uh, those findings with that report too. And Brent, um, can I tease so, there? Because one of the things we're not going to talk about today is what percentage of pipeline is driven by pipeline source, marketing versus sales development versus sales, and then what percentage of new ARR. If you're having that mm-hmm, discussion yes. inside your organization, the research does some, some enlightening facts on that. And that's probably like every organization out there, right? Especially if you're doing any financial modeling. Yes, it should be. Yeah. <laughs> if you're trying if you're to make money at all. <laughs> if, you, if, you've ever, if you've ever modeled out how to go to market, this is data that you would want to know. Do we have an extra minute? Can I take a minute on that or not? Yeah. yeah. yeah no, let's do it. Yeah. I, I presented a executive report to the entire executive team yesterday of a company I was doing these metrics assessment. And one of the things I found was that sales development was generating of their pipeline. Well, that's amazing, huh? But then I said, well, what percentage of that pipeline is becoming new AR? So what's their contribution to ARR? And it was 18%. So 20-point drop. And I'm like, well, maybe we could look at how we can enhance some of the qualitative aspects of the pipeline being generated by SDRs, right? It's just... Those type of insights are so important, especially the rate of drop-off from pipeline generation to um, ARR generation. Totally, right. And even even that one, it's like, yeah, let's look at the qualitative. What what sort of meetings are we booking? Who's, who is this pipeline coming from? Let's look at our processes. Is our SDR to AE handoff good? Because mm-hmm. it sounds to me like it's probably not great, <laughs> which is causing a bad customer journey here, which is why you're not winning those deals, right? Totally, totally. All right, cool. Well, um, in, in our last few minutes here, let's jump over to this week on LinkedIn. I actually got this question last week. So last week on LinkedIn, but I wanted to save it for this week because uh, I knew Ray was going to be on the podcast. So the, the question is, what do you think the best operating metrics are to, to determine the health of a business for very early stage startups? And this, this is from a friend that I know who started a company. Uh, they're doing pretty well. They're only about a year in. So they just have their seed funding. 
Um, so Ray, how do you think about metrics very early stage? Because I, I know you're a big fan of, you know, net dollar retention, uh, CAC, CAC payback, all that sort of stuff for a later stage. But how about the very early stages? Yeah, so my commentary and my insights are going to be more relevant to SaaS companies that sell in the mid-market to enterprise, so kind of 10,000 ACV to 100,000. So if you're a PLG or more B2C-like motion, these aren't going to be as relevant. And just like I said with benchmarks, you need to understand what your company's like and benchmark yourself against those. So the first stage, Brandon, you know, we all talk about product market fit, but for those 10K to 100K ACV, what is product market fit? And for me, I look at you have a minimum of 10 paying customers who are satisfied and have agreed to be a reference. So that's not close rates. That's not cap payback period. That is, do I have paying customers who will be a reference? So and, and, so that's, that's how you're defining uh, happy customers or, like you said, satisfied customers? Is yeah, it's like, would you be a reference? Because, by the way, your first two to three customers are probably the best way to get your next three to five customers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. in, in my little business, you know, our first two or three customers we did for basically free, but mm-hmm. they agreed to be a reference for me, so that got me the next five and then 10 paid accounts. So I think product market fit as measured by referenceability, which means they're satisfied in receiving value, is the best metric to track. Now... Once you get that, and I'm using 10, right, for this cohort, I now look at how do I get to minimum viable repeatability? How can I have some predictability of getting the next 20 to 50 customers? So the first thing I look at is my qualified opportunity to win rate, because that tells me, okay, on average, I'm closing 25% or 20% or 28%. So it helps me also understand what type of pipeline I need to generate to get the next 20 accounts, right? So that's one. Number two, I do, even there, I'm looking at leads that we're generating through our marketing programs, whether that's brand awareness building or direct response marketing, et cetera. I do want to know as early as possible, do I have any um, predictability of the conversion rate? So on average, if I've got an MQL, which equals these five variables, I know that 8% of the time, that's going to become a um, closed opportunity. The third is sell cycle time, because when you do the first two or three, it's probably someone you know. It's not someone who just heard about you through a friend, et cetera. So sell cycle time and then your average um, annual contract value. Those are the four key metrics that I would say goes from customers number 10 up to 20, even all the way up to 50. And notice, Brandon, I haven't talked anything about CAC payback period or customer acquisition cost. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's probably a lot less relevant if, if you as a company, I mean, if a customer bought your your oldest customer bought like six months ago, none of that stuff is relevant at all at that yeah. point. And honestly, you know, if you're going to raise a Series A and let's say you're up to three to five million, then I think you can start looking at some more traditional customer acquisition efficiency metrics, things like what is my customer acquisition cost, which is how much sales and marketing investment do I need to make to get a, a new customer, but more importantly, a dollar of new customer ARR. And then also look at your CAC payback period, because the CAC payback period, it looks at how much money do I need to invest 
to um, get my new ARR on a gross margin adjusted basis. And that really helps you understand what's the actual gross profit I'm driving from each customer. Yeah, and you're, you're sort of talking about making that leap from bootstrapping, right? Like really bootstrapping to to like driving your company's growth using a financial model, which is really that, that's the point of transition right there. Yeah. And by the way, at the same time, um, Jordan, to that, I would now also look at some of the customer retention efficiency metrics. But if you do this in the first six, 12, even 18 months, if you've got an annual agreement, even one renewal cycle. Churn, churn is zero there, right? If you're six months in and you got annual agreements, <laughs> now churn is healthy. perfect. <laughs> exactly. by, by the way, anybody who hears an investor, an angel investor or a seed investor say, what's your customer lifetime value? Which, by the way, has to factor in churn. Until you've got one, if not two, renewal cycles, it's a stupid metric. And the answer is, well, it's infinity. I had no churn in right. my first year. Infinity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, T- TBD is what you put on there, right? <laughs> so hopefully that answered your question, Brandon. Yeah, I, I love that a lot, especially, I mean, uh, you know, with the first stage being product market fit, 10, 10 paying customers. I might, I might add a caveat here is, 10 pain customers that are not just your friends. Uh, because, uh, I mean, going back to the Engageo days, we, we actually had um, a tag that was FOJ, Friends of John. People wanted to buy the software just because it's John Miller. Like, they're like, I, I don't care. John Miller is a genius. Anything that he builds is going to be amazing, which, sure, that may be true, but uh, I, I mean, that's. I think that's a, a very I mean, bad I, indicator. I noticed. I noticed. I noticed you didn't have an FOB. And there was no friends of Brandon purchasing. Huh? <laughs> hey, Jordan, then we'd say it's three refer- three customers. <laughs> yeah. Three. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so. So. Yeah. Maybe one caveat to that, and then going to your your minimum viable repeatability with some of those customer acquisition metrics. I, I think that's so important because you, you might. You might do something very early on where you got lucky, you got a lot of customers, a lot of traction. You didn't actually know what you did. There's no repeatability there, right? And and of course, repeatability is what um, and predictability is what VCs really want to see these days, right? Uh, and, and then your last point there, uh, minimum viable traction with your customer acquisition efficiency metrics, and then of of course retention. Um, so I, I love that. A- anything, Jonathan or, or Jordan, you want to add? I think you nailed it. Cool. And by the way, Brandon, I just, um, for your listening audience, I don't want to take full credit for that. So, you know, there's a lot of great books out there. One of the books I love, which addresses your question in a much more detailed and robust way, is called The Traction Gap. And it was written by Bruce Cleveland. And Bruce Cleveland, um, his first claim to fame was being the chief marketing officer for Siebel. Mm, and then yes. he became a VC at Wildcat Ventures. Then he went to C3AI with Tom Siebel again. And some of these concepts are directly from that book. And I would highly recommend it for any go-to-market leader, The Traction Gap. We recommend so many books on this podcast. We got to start a RevOps book club. It was, it was, we, just, yeah. we just have to start a RevOps book. It wasn't it me getting ridiculous. Yeah. I know. Well, I know. But you, I saw you light up like a Christmas tree when he said, I got a book. So, <laughs> yeah. Oprah became pretty famous for her book club, guys. There might be something there. Yeah. Little yeah. RevOps book club. Yeah, yeah. RevOps book club. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Bruce, Bruce Cleveland's uh, absolute genius. He was actually an investor in Engageo. I didn't actually know he wrote that book. So I, I definitely got to go check that out now. 
All right. Well, I, I think we, th- this might be one of the longest episodes we've done. I, I feel this like was awesome. that this, this was awesome. This was awesome. Yeah. Our yeah. audience is going to love this. Well, with, with that said, Ray, where can people learn more about you, connect with you and say hi to you? Um, you know, LinkedIn, we try to be pretty regular on posting a lot of the insights we get from our benchmark research. So just Ray Reich, R-E-Y-R-I-K-E. You can look at at Ray Reich on Twitter and you can email me anytime at I'm Ray Reich at RevOpsquared.com. And all the research and benchmarks we have, you can see directly at RevOpsquared.com. Putting the email email. address out there. Bold move. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Superhuman. I have a good filter. Superhuman. We're a gated company here. We use gated instead of superhuman. But but, but, (laughs) it's cool. And Andy Moat will be in your DMs very shortly to let you know about gated. (laughs) We'll put you two together. (laughs) Actually, will. I will introduce you. You'll love him. Um, Yeah, Andy's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been an awesome episode. If you guys enjoyed this, let me know what you think, uh, what you thought of me actually being a host or uh, enough. Back to Jordan. C minus. Wait, are you C minus? C minus at best. Let's go ahead and close out the podcast. You don't want to do the exit now. Like one of those, like, if you like this podcast, please give us five stars on Apple. I was getting to that. I was getting to that. He's trying to get to be the permanent host, is what that is. Yeah, it's it's, it's lingering. Exactly. Well, as Jordan said, leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever fine podcasts are are found. I was about to say sold, but I I guess uh, podcasts are free these days. Um, and again, if, if you want your question answered on this week on LinkedIn, let us know. Shoot either Jordan or I a message. And, and maybe Jonathan has actually been more active lately. He posted once this week. This week. Twice. Ooh, yeah, twice. I know. Twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ray. Hey, this Brandon, was awesome. Thanks, Ray. Very comfortable Thanks, Ray. as a host. You're really good at it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Don't, don't give him a big head. We talked about false flattery, Ray. We talked about it. It's not allowed on this podcast. Okay. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Thanks Ray. guys. Thanks, Ray.